everybody. It's Doug Birch, and you're listening to the Fairly Spiritual Show podcast, which is also being streamed live on Facebook and Twitter. And I don't know why I'm doing that, but I just am. On today's show, I want to talk about deconstruction, remnant theology, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, the rise and fall of the liturgists, and the rise and fall of Doug Birch. It should be interesting. Okay, so uh, when I used to have a radio show, uh, it was a daily show. It was part-time, but it was a two-hour show, and some days I hardly had any time to prepare for the show. Uh, but I would have a thought in my head, and I would write down some uh, thoughts on the thought, and then we would go live, and then I would share my heart with uh, the people. Uh, since most of the people at the station, the management, didn't listen to my show, I got away with talking about all sorts of things that... Uh, I don't know. If somebody had supervised me, they might not have let me do it. And today I, I want to kind of have that vibe. Uh, this is live on Twitter and Facebook, although I didn't tell anyone. So right now, I don't know if anyone is even uh, listening, but eventually this will become a podcast or maybe not. Maybe I'll just be like, mm, I don't want to share that. So <clears throat> we'll see what happens. But I've been mulling over certain things in my heart and give me permission if this isn't articulated that well. I'm going to talk about enough controversial things that I'm sure to offend someone. That's not my goal. The goal of processing the things that I'm processing today is one, uh, selfishly, just to kind of figure out where I am in life, but also to maybe help each of us look at our lives and uh, what we're focusing in on and uh, who we're giving our best energy to. So uh, I think it was Sunday before church. I uh, was sitting in my car and just the thought came to me, I wonder what happened to the liturgist. Uh, what's going on with the liturgist? Now, if you don't know about the liturgist, um, I don't know if you'd say it's a whole movement. It really started with Michael Gunger, and uh, then other people came along. Um, I don't know as much about all the people. I know another one of the main uh, persons in the liturgist was uh, Mike uh, McCargu, which I struggled with his last name because he just went by Science Mike. And Science Mike is someone who would come on my radio show and I've had really good interactions with, and up to this day, I, I consider that to be an online friendship. Um, uh, Michael Gunger, I just haven't interacted with him. I've just seen what goes on with social media. But uh, I was what I was looking at what's happening with the liturgists because uh, for me with Twitter, what would happen with Twitter is every once in a while, there'd just be this big blow up among progressive Christians or liturgist fans or former fans. And it would usually be about something Michael Gunger has said are done. And in the last couple of years, it, become more, it became more and more exaggerated. And I followed some of those things and it used to be some Twitter battle or something he posted. And, um, you know, it's just an insight to how people process the world. Uh, but I wanted to see, you know, are they still around? Uh, what's happened? Because the last time I checked in on them, there was a lot going on. So I went to their podcast page and their last podcast has been, you know, a long time. Uh, they haven't done one in a while. And it was basically Michael Gunger admitting to some things, but not everything. He was admitting to the fact that the liturgist as a brand, as a podcast, as a website, however you'd express it, was facing some real trauma. They had lost lots of their membership, lots of their giving and gotten to a lot of conflict. And so at some level, he was trying to address this. And again, hear me clearly, I'm not trying to attack Michael Gunger here, but I, I just thought, hmm, this would be interesting to see how he's processing the decline, the, the conflict, the things that I would see tangentially. I wasn't 
a regular listener. I'd listened a few times and interested in what they're doing, but I had noticed how the interactions were occurring online. And so um, I'm listening. And uh, at the beginning, he's he's arguing with himself, kind of this self-deprecating kind of thing, recognizing that he has some problems and needs help. And then the show is for him to talk with another person who disagrees with him primarily theologically, which I thought was very interesting. Because online, when I would see the issues for Michael Gunger, it really wasn't about theology. It was people who were struggling with his basic character, the way that he interacted with people, the way that he fought, the way that he didn't apologize, or the way that he apologized but still centered himself. And I don't know if he was doing all these things right or wrong, but if I looked at the problems just as an outside observer, it wasn't really the theology. But uh, Michael Gunger brought onto the liturgist a, a, another guy who seemed to like him. They had a friendship to talk about their differences in theology. And the, the other man basically asked him the question, why do you think there's such a decline right now? Why do you think uh, this is happening to the liturgist? And I, I have to just tell you, I was just shocked by his answer because his answer was almost all theology. It was, you know, I'm going in a new direction theologically. And Michael Gunger's moved from, I don't think he'd call himself a Christian anymore. He just kind of, I actually, I'd let him describe what that is, but it's this idea of belief outside of God and universalism and, and, and whatever. So yes, there definitely has been a trajectory of how he expresses himself in existence in any kind of faith context. But the list of things that he gave for why he thought the community was uh, basically falling apart, why he was losing, you know, 60, 70% of his listeners, his donation, why he was facing all this conflict, is he gave almost two or three reasons that were all theological reasons. But he didn't list, and maybe he listed it later because I stopped listening because this was just the beginning of the podcast. And this is his first, you know, this is his first attempt as things are falling apart around him to kind of give a clear understanding of, you know, I kind of get what the problem is. And he put the problem almost primarily, well, actually at the beginning he did, primarily in terms of theology, which was odd to me. Because if I were to look at it, the problem is more than theology. It's an issue of the person, the character, personality issues, people who love him, friends, people who are rallying behind the expression of the liturgist were frustrated with the way he was treating people. Now, hear me clearly. I'm not even saying he's treating people wrong. I have an opinion about that. But he couldn't even say that the conflict was that people don't like how I treat other people. People don't like how I abide with other people. They don't like how I'm handling conflict. They're disagreeing with how I'm trying to reconcile or, or, or how I treat people fundamentally as, as image bearers. That didn't even come up. And it showed me how he could be very blind to one of the fundamental issues that is going on in our life. And before you think this is just, you know, let's attack him or defend him, it just reminded me that regardless of where we are on the theological spectrum, if there is a spectrum, regardless of our politics, whether we're far right or far left, if we consider ourselves incredibly progressive or incredibly conservative or all along the spectrum there, there are actually a lot of similarities in how we function in the world. And that's what I want to focus in on today. And it's going to be hard for me to express this. So 
but I, I hope, you know, if you stay with me through this, you're going to stay with me. Most people are going to come in and be like, oh, I don't want anything to do with this, but I need to process this out loud. I'm seeing with the liturgist, the rise and fall of the liturgist. I take no joy in it. I, I'm not necessarily terribly sad about it. It's just the progression of a movement, a movement of people who came together in certain partnerships of leadership and partnerships of, of listeners and had an identity that they defined themselves by, but conflicts occurred and eventually there became this fracturing and, and you know, it might continue on or it might not. But what I noticed is as one of the leaders, in fact, the, the leader now of that movement, because I know Science Mike and others have moved away from it and distanced themselves from the liturgist, the one who's remaining is still not really aware of what's happening, still thinking this is just a theological issue. And I thought about, and this is what I'd hope you would do. Could you think along with me, instead of distancing ourselves from others and saying, oh, that's just what they do, I like to think, how do I do that as well? Because that's a very common trait that humans do. When people reject us, when people leave us, when people break free from the movement we're in, the tendency, instead of to think in terms of personality, our personality, our, our behaviors, or the way we facilitate community, often the issue is, well, they just didn't agree with things the way we agree with them. They just didn't have, you know, they sold out their theology or, or they, you know, they couldn't understand, you know, they were just a little weak in their faith and they couldn't understand the purity of our theology. It's amazing how often we present things in that way. So I thought about that idea of the rise and fall of the liturgist because of something else that many of you know about that Christianity Today put together this long and I probably too many episodes long podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And in that, they talked about primarily Mark Driscoll and the church that he formed, Mars Hill, and the great success it had, at least in terms of numbers and influence in the beginning and how many things happened that eventually had that church fracture. Mark Driscoll leave uh, that community, start a church somewhere else, and leave a lot of people hurt and uh, full of pain and just going, what, what do I do? And again, in that podcast, they gave all kinds of different reasons for why this was corrupt or reasons why Mark Driscoll failed or things that they did wrong. But one of the things that I would say, primarily, the biggest issue was not even an issue of theology, although there was some terrible theology but an issue of a leader not being able to truly see who they are, not being able to just identify and acknowledge the fact that they might be a little bit narcissistic, narcissistic, or maybe a lot narcissistic, not being able to apologize, not being able to say they're sorry genuinely, not, not being able to go through restorative ministry. That means to sit down with the people you've sinned against and instead of to justify yourself or just say, we have the pure theology and, and you don't, uh, we're following God and you're not, uh, making conflict a religious of who's right and who's wrong with God, not being able to just process the fact that different people experience things in different ways and, and that we should genuinely respect and love those who differ from us. We should genuinely acknowledge the fact that maybe uh, if our actions have hurt others, even if we didn't intend to hurt others, that that matters. And if we're repeatedly hurting many people, we probably should do something about it. Well, there were other things they talked about in the podcast, but to me, the fundamental problem with uh, what Mark Driscoll did in Seattle area, and that's the area I'm from, and I was on the radio at that time and very much saw the hurt and had pastors who had left the church and people who left that church send me emails full of pain and hurt about how they've been treated. The fundamental problem to me 
was not the theology, although the theology uh, could certainly facilitate bad behavior. It was the personality. It was the character of the individual. I remember I brought Mark onto my show once, you know, just he called in and he had said something that was very extreme and that someone who at some level had humility would apologize. And I brought him on in the sense of to give him opportunity to apologize, but he didn't apologize. He justified and defended and doubled down and basically said, you know, we've got the right way. The disagreement is, you know, I'm preaching the truth and they don't believe the truth, which made me think about how similar progressive groups and also really conservative groups are. And by the way, you can find moderates in this place too, but it's easier for me to tell the story between those two groups. In the progressive group, there's sometimes this idea of, you know, we're just a little bit more special than everyone else. The term is we are evolving, right? And I think evolving is not a good term because one, if you say you're evolving and you're talking to people who don't even believe in evolution, that's kind of condescending, right? And evolving also kind of shows that, well, you guys are Cro-Magnum man, you know, you're lesser than Christians and we have evolved. Now, I know maybe that's not the intent, but it creates this idea that we are at the pinnacle of what's right and true. We've discovered it. We're evolving. The rest are stuck in their ways, but we've evolved to a new level of enlightenment. Well, what's very similar to that? Well, the conservative expression of the remnant. Uh, the world is falling apart. Everybody is going their own ways. They've all corrupted the gospel, but we, we have held on to the true gospel. We've held on to the true teachings while everyone else is corrupted, while everyone else is devolving, right? As everyone is going down the slippery slope to depravity, we have held on to or maybe rediscovered the way that Paul knew and John knew and Jesus knew. Both of those expressions very much are centered on the idea that we are a special group who found special information. We are the, the finally the, the pure denomination, which is kind of what humans do in general. We're, we're the pure denomination. We're the ones who have the Trinity right and the, our perception of God right and how to interpret the Bible right and how to look at scriptural authority right. We language it the right way. We know what is right. And so on one level, you have the progressive side of we've found what things are just, you know, the past and, and uh, you know, should just kind of die with that error. And they're, they're part of the prejudices and the ignorances of people who lived a long time ago. And now we found the true source. And then you have on the conservative side, we've been able to move past all this modern, you know, extremism and corruption to go to the core source. So you know how to really truly interpret the Bible and make your theology. On the progressive side, it's almost we are a little bit more enlightened than everyone. And on the conservative side, we're a little bit more righteous and holy than everyone else. Often these groups unite by the fact that we're not like everyone else. We're just a little different. And the internet age allows us to do that, right? We can hang out with our little group of people or our large group of people and say, we're, we're just a little bit specialer than everyone else. I saw that living in, in Seattle, in the Seattle area with Mars Hill, that there's a lot of extremism. I, I grew up in the Northwest. To me, it's just kind of being in the Northwest. But there's a lot of stuff that can feel hostile towards traditional Christianity. And you could see how Mars Hill became like this island, right? This, this place of safety. It's kind of like when immigrants come to the U.S. and they go to the immigrant church so they can hold on to their culture and their rituals and, you know, just find people like them who have shared experiences. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, right? There's 
just a place to unite. Well, you saw that among Christians. They they wanted to gather together, but they had more conservative upbringings. And, and here was this island of Mars Hill. And it wasn't just a little island. It was a big island. And then the bigger the island got, the more it validated the fact that, hey, I'm not, I'm I, I must not be crazy. I, maybe I do believe something that's true and right. And maybe we do have the right thing because there's thousands of people with me and we're in this growing movement. So, so I must not be alone. And maybe I even have the right view of God. It's kind of the power of like, uh, remember promise keepers. If you get 40,000 men in one stadium, there's a sense of I'm not alone. It's okay for me to have faith. I know sometimes you like to belittle promise keepers and all, but that sense of, yeah, I'm not a fool to believe in Jesus because you know, my television really doesn't show good examples of Christians and, and my culture doesn't, but here I am among 40, 50,000 other men who are professing Christ and <clears throat> you feel less alone. But there's also this idea that we become this, this special group. And that is, you know, fundamentally human, but it's also fundamentally American. Americans love to define themselves as we're just a little different than everyone else. Almost every American likes to just, you know, I'm just a little different than everyone else. Again, today is going to be a lot of rambling, but I'm just I'm just going to go in for the long haul. You're either with me or you're not. This is kind of the heart where I've been messing around in my mind. But I, I used to facilitate church planting, like for pastors, couples who wanted to start a church. And it was a week-long intensive where they worked at, you know, how are they going to structure the church? What are their values? And it was mission and vision and all these things that the people who ran the program wanted us to teach. But but I went there primarily just to encourage these young couples who were ready to start a church. But one of the things I found with these young couples is at the end of the church planting retreat, people would get up and they'd share the vision of their church. You know, they'd stand up and say, you know, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm Ashley and I'm Jim. Sorry, I made them very, you know, just Ashley and Jim. But there's a lot of those church planters. And, and, and we are going to go out and reach this community and it's an unchurched region and almost always they would say something like this. Our church is going to be a little different than your average church. We're not going to be like your normal church. And then they'd give their presentation. Now, at the time that I did this, everybody was going to open a coffee shop. You know, that just <laughs> There was going to be lots of Christian coffee shops. And if they were really kind of on the edge, it was going to be, you know, maybe a Christian bar. And then our denomination was like, well, you must go somewhere else because you can't have alcohol. But the reality is everybody thought they were going to be just a little different. But the irony is you'd think after the 30th couple got up there and talked about how different they were going to be, that maybe that is the universal thing for American Christians is we all think we're different. And in thinking we're different, we're actually a lot the same. In fact, uh, Okay, I'll just tell you, on, on my radio show, every week we had Church of the Week. It was the radio station's way to get more Christians to listen. So they would pick a pastor of a church and have a Church of the Week, and I would interview that pastor. And depending upon whether the pastor manuscripted or not, it was either a very interesting interview or it was just like pulling teeth. Uh, by the way, I've never pulled teeth, so, so maybe it wasn't like that. But it was in a place where, you know, you asked him, it was like a 10-minute segment that could feel like an eternity or just go by really quickly. But I would ask almost every pastor this question. At the beginning, I did it because I thought it was a useful question. But by the end, I just did it to see how many pastors would give the same answer. But I'd ask them this question or some form of this question. I'd say, what makes your church unique? 
I mean, what makes it special? What do you really brag about that you really love about your church? You know, what's the thing that you just love about First Presbyterian this or Baptist this or Lutheran this or Pentecostal Revival Movement Center? Like, what's the one thing that you really love about your church? And almost 99.9% of the people would say something like this. The thing I love about our church, which makes us special and maybe even unique, is that we really love people. We really care about people. We really love, we, we're a loving community and you feel welcomed and loved and some expression of that, which was so ironic to me that we had convinced ourselves that all churches didn't love and we'd convinced ourselves that all of us were unique in the fact that we loved each other. Now, this whole concept of, of basically trying to reach people or trying to unite or trying to present ourselves as unique and different, but that actually is something we all do is such a strong phenomenon in America that Apple, the makers of the MacBook and the iPhone, in case you didn't know, they actually monetized this American distinctive that all of us think we're just a little bit more unique and different than everyone else. So they sold their computers with taglines like, think different. As if you bought the MacBook or the iMac or whatever they were selling at that time, you were someone who thought different than the rest of the world. And they even used, you know, people of importance from Gandhi to Martin Luther King Jr. to John Lennon. And they monetized those people who were different in society to sell you a product, to help you feel that when you buy that MacBook, when you buy that iPhone, you're just a little different than everyone else. And the irony is no matter how popular the iPhone has become and no matter how much Apple has just basically overwhelmed entire markets, they still present themselves as what unique people do. Even if in a room of 100 pastors, 80 of them have iPhones, it's still that we're the unique ones with our iPhones dancing around with our earbuds as we think different and act different. And it's important to look at this because we, we, we move forward with this idea that we're different from others or that we can form a society or a movement that's radically different from each other. But in doing that, we stop looking at the things that make us fundamentally the same. So I can listen to uh, the liturgists and Mike Gunger talk about why they're struggling and he can't think about the fact that Maybe some of the problems are just his basic character, his basic ability to exist with people. And that's very similar to someone like Mark Driscoll. And his basic problem wasn't that others didn't believe in his theology and it's the liberal agenda or a political agenda. It was a human agenda that he couldn't exist in community because he couldn't apologize. There's a lot more that unite us across party lines and it's not all positive. We're united whether progressive or conservative or moderate based on our un unwillingness to apologize, by our inability to say we're sorry, by our reluctance to allow others to disagree with us without making it a thus saith the Lord, I'm right and you're wrong. We all want to be unique and special and to say, well, our movement's a little different and our theology's a little purer and our whatever. But in doing that, we forget to look at the things that make us very similar. You know, it's interesting. We so much don't want to look like the rest of the world and the rest of humanity that we create new words even to describe what we're going through as if we only go through it in this age. I think about the word deconstruction. I, I have nothing wrong with the word deconstruction. It's a powerful word. 
that can very much articulate what someone's going through. Now, deconstruction is a lot like evangelical, that depending upon how you did deconstruction, depending upon where you end up, it can mean many things. For some, it can mean a reshuffling of things. You, you take down your theological convictions and you kind of go down to the source and then you rebuild back up with a different faith expression. For others, deconstruction is you had a faith expression, you deconstructed it, and you have no faith expression at all. So there's a whole gamut of what that means. But I think one of the reasons we gravitate towards this word is it makes us unique. Because people have been deconstructing whether that name has been around for all of existence. As long as humans have existed on this planet, people have deconstructed, but they haven't used that term. But I think we don't want to be tied to the terms of the past. We don't want to say that we're going through something that humans have just gone through. So we call it something different. Now, it might help us to explain what we're going through more carefully. Uh, languages develop. We find words to help us specifically express who we are. But we also find language as a way to control things and to say, no, I'm not like that. I'm not like my parents or my grandparents or my great-grandparents. I'm different. I'm deconstructing. But we all know, you know, think about, I think about my grandparents. Uh, I think about how many children died at birth. People who had faith, they loved the Lord, they served the Lord, they prayed, they lived good lives, and then God allowed them to get pregnant, and then their baby died. And their baby died, and then suddenly the world just fell apart, and their certainty about what is happening, and God, what do you do or not do, and how could you allow for this to happen? And everything that constructed their faith kind of deconstructs, and then they have to figure out do I believe in you, Lord? And how do I believe in you, Lord? And for some, you saw a depth of faith and maturity and a, a centralizing their life on what is true and important and real. For others, you saw an apathy and indifference, a depression about faith where they just didn't recover. But that was a process of deconstruction. Looking at man's inhumanity to man in World War II, the Holocaust, the lives lost, any war, pick a war, right? The Civil War, the brutality between states. People had an idea about what people would unite around, what God would do, and then God didn't show up, and God allowed millions to be killed, and God didn't show up, and God didn't show up when he allowed your son to get sick and to die. And God didn't show up when he allowed your spouse to have an affair and to cheat on you and to leave you. And those are all areas where faith has been deconstructed or the person you believed in and loved and cared about uh, betrayed you. So again, I'm not talking about it's wrong to use the word deconstruction, but sometimes I think we even like to point out, well, what I'm going through is unique, and the reality is it's, it's not unique. Sadly, it's not unique. I don't quite know where I'm going with this, so again, if you're with me, thank you for the two people who are. If we're honest, and this, this is, this is going to come to me, this, I'm entitling this The Rise and Fall of Douglas Birch. Thought I put my full name in there. The Rise and Fall of Douglas Birch. Although I don't know there's been that much rise, but it's definitely the fall. I think if we're honest, maybe you don't have this struggle, but if we're honest, a lot of our theological formation is escapism. We're trying to escape 
the inevitabilities of existence. We're trying to create some sort of utopian expression that keeps us from going through what our parents went through, our grandparents went through, our great-grandparents went through, and Adam and Eve went through. We're trying to create, and, and I, by the way, I believe, you know, even doing this, I believe in transformation. I believe in working towards better things. I don't believe, you know, just the inevitability and whatever, you know, I believe we're supposed to fight against injustices. I believe that apathy is not the correct response to God moving in the world or to injustices in the world. But if I were to be honest with myself, some of my theological formation, some of my community formation has been trying to escape the inevitabilities of existence to create a utopian society, whether the progressive, the utopian evolved community that gets it right, or the far, you know, extremist conservative, like we're going to find what the remnant is, or we're going to be like the church of Acts and, and really be, and if we're like that, we'll be strong and whole and safe and and, and, and these communities will not face the traumas and the hurts and the pains of existence. It's a utopian conviction that we will create a community, a movement, a theology that escapes the inevitabilities of life. You live long enough, you realize that that's probably in you more than you realize. I see that with extreme legalistic, conservative, uh, you know, dogmatic people. They try, try to create a system like for parenting. This elaborate parenting system. If you got to raise your kids this way and discipline them this way and have these rules and consequences and you and all along the way, you look at their phone and you you interview the person who's going to date them and they only go on double dates and you don't let them till they're 16 do this until they're 18 do this. And even when they're 18, you do this. And it's all these rules and regulations. And, and outside of the validity of those regulations, just the whole motivation behind it seems to be at some level that I can create this utopian parenting-child relationship where if I do it right, my child won't suffer. My child will love the Lord. My child won't get addicted. My child won't use drugs. My child won't be, you know, harm themselves sexually, won't, won't end up in a place where they're angry at God or angry at me. I just need to do it right. But that utopian conviction is also in, I don't know, whatever your expression of the most progressive expression of it. You know, I'm just going to, whatever the kids want, I'm going to validate that. I'm not going to project my spirituality on them. And I'm going to create this safe environment. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm a guy who doesn't believe in legalism. I didn't spank my kids. I love my kids. My kids are turning out really well. But there's this part of me that still did whatever I was doing with this fear or this ego that thought if I could just do this all right, I could control their destinies. I could, I could avoid the inevitabilities that humans are very different. And for my kids, some of them, their faith convictions are going to be, in my opinion, stronger than others. Some of them are going to be more passionate about things than others. And that no matter how I structure things, they're going to find out how to exist with them and God. And, and I cannot create the utopian parenting model that prevents them from being fully human. I don't give up. Again, I have strong convictions about parenting, but if I were honest, I think a lot of our parenting models, a lot of our theological models, our church models, are ways to create a utopian society where we don't have to deal with the pain and the inevitabilities of life, marriage issues, 
you see that as well to to create the system and not just men are supposed to do this and women are supposed to do this and if everybody does their role and we all do it right then we won't have marital discord and we won't have affairs and we won't have sexual promiscuity and if we just have the right system and sadly we even do that in the well we won't have all these rules and we'll just talk everything out and hang out and be and that'll work but the reality is no matter how you structure existence you're going to face pain are you not immune to pain? And people just like you who structured things just like you go through terrible traumas. And even if you didn't go through a trauma and you were lucky enough to have a marriage where there was um, faithfulness and there wasn't promiscuity, it doesn't mean that someone else who does it just the way you do it is going to have the same results. We're living sometimes in this utopian conviction that if I just structured it the right way, it'll be okay and I can escape the realities of existence. This makes me think about most movements, whether progressive movements or conservative movements, most movements when they form and have their passionate formation, they're seldom diverse. It's often just a bunch of white people or a bunch of black people or a bunch of young people or a bunch of old people or a bunch of rich people or a bunch of poor people. Now, sometimes it's not the desire of that group to not be diverse. It's just that no other group will be with them. And often with oppressed groups, it's like, come and join us, but people don't want to join them. But there's another reason why groups are not very diverse. Like I saw within progressive movements, in general, it was a bunch of young people. And they all united, but there weren't a lot of elders there. There weren't a lot of older people there. And one of the reasons there's not diversity in these groups is because diversity complicates our desire to make a utopian society. Because if just a bunch of young Christians are going to change the world gathered together, they can all be united in their utopian society. But if they bring in a 50-year-old woman or a 60-year-old man or you know somebody from a different perspective, or if it's a bunch of white progressives and they bring in progressives who are diverse and come from different backgrounds or different race or different ethnicities, they bring in different complications and say, well, it's not that easy. And Actually, that's not what will happen. And actually, that's not utopian for this person or that person. My father would tell me this, and I agree with him. He says, sometimes elders have to be old. You know, they and why do they have to be old? Is because they have to have lived enough life that there's integrity to their faith. They went through the conflicts. They went through the disillusionment. They went through the deconstruction and came out on the other side still a person of faith. But sadly, in a lot of our utopian movements, there's not much diversity because we don't want those things. We don't want the older man or the older woman who's seen a bit in life to say, well, you're not going to be able to escape the pain. We don't want someone from a different race or ethnicity to say, well, that's nice of you to think that, but you're kind of living in a place of privilege that you really don't understand what the majority of the world has been facing through existence. And what happens even in these homogenous groups is conflict occurs and the inability to deal with the fact that every group is going to have conflict and how do we go through it? We just break off into other homogenous utopian groups. And that's what we're seeing in the internet age. So we just fracture and fracture and that's how we got all these denominations and that's how we get all these different progressive groups and how we get all these different remnant groups and we fracture and fracture and fracture and we find a group that can facilitate a utopian society and agree upon what relationships are and what sexuality and marriage is and what um, parenting is and what friendships is and what the authority of scripture is and, and, and universalism versus Jesus the only way. And we come to these groups we find a way to unite until there's fracturing again. Okay. 
for the one person still with me. Thank you. That's nice of you. I appreciate that. Where does this all take me? Well, today I just told you, these are the thoughts that have been in my head, and I'm certainly probably wrong in a lot of it, but this is just where I'm at. I've been thinking about my personal life, the rise and fall of Doug Bursch. I think if I were honest with myself, I've had a lot of magical thinking. A lot of like, I'm going to escape the pain of existence. And and that kind of was the motivator of me even becoming a pastor. I'm going to become a pastor and uh, I'm going to facilitate a community. I'm not going to be mean like those mean pastors or judgmental or critical. I'm not going to yell at people or abuse them or harm them. I'm going to be nice to them. And I'm going to preach the things that I feel like have brought life to me and my family. And then others will be attracted to that and they'll gather together. And even if we disagree, we'll still be loving and caring and we'll still, you know, find a way to move forward. And oh, that utopian existence. But I had a lot of magical thinking. And I thought that if I just structured the church a certain way, that I wouldn't face the pain that communities face. And here's the reality. No matter how you structure a church, you're going to face tremendous pain. And I'm telling you, what is this, two years into a pandemic, I have experienced tremendous hurt and loss and pain. And it got me a little disillusioned and angry at God. God, why won't you bring about this utopian community that I wanted? Why is it so hard? Why have so many people left? And the same thing as, well, they left because they don't have the strong theological convictions and but I don't know. I don't know. Who do I blame? What do I blame? Well, I probably do the same things that those people we've been looking at on Twitter do and those big leaders do. Is Well, first I can uh, blame others. I can say, well, the reason it's been a struggle for me is they've abandoned the way. And maybe they have, but that's where I want to go first. You know, It's those people. I've got the way. I figured it out and they've abandoned it. Or maybe I could do it this way. You know, they're just not evolving. They're living in the past and they're just not seeing what's central and they're focusing in on secondary things. They're just not as evolved as I am. I could go that route. Or I could go at, you know, they've given up on the truth, the gospel truth, that they've corrupted their lives. It's not an issue that they're not evolving with me. It's that they're actually being corrupted by the world. Or I could look at my fundamental flaws that I'm not the best pastor. I'm not very relational. I don't really know how to connect with people. I like preaching and teaching, but I am awkward in a home group. Honestly, I like to be alone. And being that is probably hard. It's hard to be with a pastor like that. Like I, I don't, I don't like to reach out. I'm certainly if people reach out to me, I'm with them and I love them, but I just try to protect myself probably also a bit of a mansplainer, probably preach more than listen. I probably talk more than listen. And I'm often more concerned about my ego than other people. Even the size of our church, our church is very small right now. And I look around sometimes and I think, I don't know, can we keep this going? But so often that's just kind of a self-focus. You know, woe is me. Oh, I'm such a bad pastor. Our church is so small, blah, blah, blah. But it's really not geared towards the people in the room, these beautiful, lovely, supportive people. Or even geared to God. You know, God, I love you. You know, I, you didn't guarantee me anything. 
But the problem is my utopian idea of existence is kind of crumbling. So what do I do? So you have the rise and fall of Mars Hill and the rise and fall of the liturgists. I don't know if the liturgists have fallen yet. I don't want anybody to fall, but maybe, I don't know. Maybe move on to something else, the evolution of the rise and fall of Doug Birch. Have you experienced some rises and falls? Like for me, it feels more like a fall. But just these ideas of what I thought life was about. Now, I really feel like there's good fruit to my life. So, and that could be arrogance, but I love my marriage. I love my family. I feel like the things I've lived and believed and taught are good. That there's health. I don't have a line of, you know, thrown away people behind me. You know, people have drifted away, but I don't have people I've excommunicated and forced to leave and angry things. It's just been distance, you know, just kind of people go their own way. But I'm still caught with, what do I do? What's the answer? Now, I've gone so long, I might as well go a little longer. I'm, don't worry, I'm closing. But as a pastor, you know, that doesn't mean much. But I'm even just going to throw this in because I don't know where it fits. Someone listening might say, well, you know what you need is counseling. And you know what I'd say? Absolutely, yes. But maybe not. And what I want to say about that is like, I, I like counseling. Our church, by the way, has announced anyone who goes to our church if you need counseling, we want to pay for your first two visits. So that's my heart. And it doesn't have to be Christian counseling, psychiatric help, whatever. Whatever is needed to help someone, I value counseling. But here, the utopian idea can be like, that's what will save us. You know, it's pastors who manipulate people and harm them, so we need counselors to help them. Here's the problem, though. Counselors are just people. And you know that if you've had counseling, there's great counselors and there's terrible counselors. Some of my best interactions with people have been with counselors. And one of my worst interactions ever was with a counselor who facilitated an abusive uh, interaction that I was a part of. So even there, you get disillusioned because counseling is not going to save us and pastors aren't going to save us and uh, Republicans aren't going to save us and Democrats aren't going to save us and capitalism isn't going to save us and socialism isn't going to save us and whatever system we're trying to do. And, and I have strong opinions about all those things. And I... I am somewhere on the spectrum with all those issues. And some things I think are far more wicked than others. But I just think that I must confront this reality that existence has been difficult from the beginning. People have been incredibly depraved and harmful and hurtful to each other. And terrible things have happened generation after generation after generation. And I don't want to promote a faith that is simplistic, where it's just follow my utopian conception of existence and all will go well with you. Because it's not true. Really beautiful, wonderful people are going to go through some terrible things. And also you can have a tremendous theology and be going to the right church and hanging out with the right people but your character can be fundamentally flawed and it doesn't matter where you insulate yourself. God wants to deal with that in your life. So what's the answer? Well, first I'd say, I don't know. This is what I wrote out at the end. I just came, this is an end. Yes, I'm coming to an end here. Thank you for the two people who listened. I'm hoping one of you is not negative towards me at the end of this. I'm hoping at least one of you is encouraged by this. But this is the thought I've been thinking about, grace. Grace means a lot of things. By the way, in the New Testament context, grace was probably much more seen just as a gift in the terms of they had uh, relationships where benefactors 
would be in the community. They would give gifts to the poor. They'd give gifts to the needy. And these gifts were, were charis gifts, which is grace, just a gift. They gave it not expecting to be paid back. Uh, they might expect a little bit of praise, a plaque on the wall, an announcement at the festival that they sponsored this festival, you know, a good place to sit because they've given stuff. But they didn't give to get something in return as far as monetary. These would be charis gifts, grace gifts. It's just a gift. And if anything, Jesus's presence in the world is a gift. It's like, I've just come to give you. You, you don't deserve this, but I've come to give it and to give it freely. And I'm not giving it with any expectation. You can praise me and you can love me, but I'm giving you this gift for you to do as you will with it. The gift of forgiveness, the gift of love, the fullness of the gospel, that it is a charis gift. Grace also, to me, at some level, is an expression of the unknown, that I don't really know who I am, and I don't think I ever will, but God knows, and he gave me love. He gave me grace. Because God knows me, and he knows me better than I know myself, and even as I was an enemy of God, he gave me grace, he gave me gifts, that at some level, I want to be that in the world, that I want to be a giver of grace, of charis. And to be a giver of charis means that I don't have to understand people's needs. I don't have to be able to discern whether they're doing it right or wrong. I just get to give them the gift that God gave me. And so that's kind of how I move forward is like, I don't know. I don't know what you're responsible for. I don't know what my kids are responsible for. I don't know what my wife's responsible for, the people in the congregation I serve. I don't know what Mark Driscoll and Michael Gunger and whoever's responsible for. Yeah, I'm going to speak about what I think is right and wrong, but I don't, I don't know their nature, their nurture. I don't know how God formed them. I don't know how much is hardwired. I don't know. I'm going to speak the truth and love. But the reality is I have to live at some level with a concept of grace that I don't know and I don't understand. And because of that, I need to be gentle and kind and I need to hold these systems in my hand lightly. I've got strong convictions about the authority of Scripture. I've got strong convictions about the gospel. I'm not neutral on that. Jesus is a big deal in my theological conception of existence. But I also must admit that that even, if that is truth that I know, it was a gift from God. And I'm not going to use that truth to judge others. I'm just going to try to give it to others with grace, knowing that if they accept or receive it, that's between them and God. It's my job to give the gift to others that I've been given and to give that gift in love. Love that flows from the truth that my existence is an expression of grace. My existence is an expression of grace. To, to exist, to have being, to be able to think about stuff, to disagree or agree with God and others. This is all a gift. And so I want to live this life as an expression of grace. So questions to ask you. Where are you at? Are you afraid to look at the things in your own life? When conflicts occur and struggles occur, is it, ah, they just don't have the right theology or the evolved theology or, you know, is it just, you know, are you hiding out? Because I want to welcome you to a climate of grace. Welcome you to a place where you're accepted and loved, but then in that acceptance and love, you can say, you know, maybe the fact that these relationships keep fracturing is there's also stuff in me that's broken. And I don't know how to apologize. And 
I don't know how to be wrong. I don't know how to love. I just don't know, and I think I do. Maybe that's a good starting point. And maybe the mystery of God in our midst through the power of the Holy Spirit can find a way to unite us, even when we fundamentally don't know as much as we think we know. The rise and fall of me, regardless of my little kingdom planning, I trust that God's grace is enough for me and that whatever I'm doing, whether I'm preaching or doing podcasts or writing books or welcoming people at Walmart, that I am with God and God is with me and my worth is not dependent upon all that other stuff that I think is so important. Yeah, I know, this is not a clear resolution, but I think if I were to give you a clear resolution, I'd probably be building just another utopian concept of existence that would eventually rise and fall. Love you guys. I thank you so much for listening. That is such an honor that you would listen to this entire thing. That is amazing. Thank you. If you want to know more about what I do, go to fairlyspiritual.org. There's past podcasts, less long, a little bit more focused. You can certainly read the book, Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us, and What We Can Do About It. Or my first book, uh, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. I love you. I really do. And I'm praying for God's best for you in your life. All right. I will now end this form of the podcast.